joined on the line by Timothy Longman, an expert in all things Rwanda. In relation to Timothy is from the director of Curia, Curia Institute on Culture, Religion and World Affairs in Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. And uh, Timothy, I suppose looking back this week, we're focusing back on what was an awful time in history, the Rwandan genocide. And uh, can you tell us about your bit about your backstory in relation to Rwanda? I know from conducting our research that you had uh, connections with R Rwanda even before the genocide took place in 1994. Yeah, I was in Rwanda doing my dissertation research on religion and politics in 1992 and 1993. Um, I got to Rwanda in uh, May of that year at a very sort of optimistic time in 1992 when people thought uh, things were going very well in the country. And then I, I watched over the course of a year as the country sort of fell apart and moved towards genocide. Um, and uh, I left about 11 months before the genocide took place. Um, and then I went back to Rwanda. Uh, in 1995 as the head of the Human Rights Watch office. We did a major research project on um, how the genocide took place, both at the national and the local level. So I spent another year doing research um, after the genocide to follow up uh, to understand it. Yeah, and uh, Timothy, as we know, the Rwandan uh, civil war, it was ordered by the members of the Hutsu majority government and an estimated 500 to 1 million uh, Rwandans were killed, constituting an estimated 70% of the Tutsi population. And... Uh, you know, from you said you went back to Rwanda again, and you, at your time there doing your research, you actually got got carried in to be an expert witness in trials to put some of the most notorious Rwandan war criminals behind the uh, trials, uh, behind bars. And how did that come about? Uh, mostly because of my work with Human Rights Watch. Um, we gathered a lot of evidence um, from interviews from survivors about what happened. Uh, but we also gathered uh, a lot of documentary evidence, um, like the Holocaust uh, in, in Europe. Uh, there were a lot of things that were written down, lists of people to be killed and meetings of minutes. And so uh, I had actually gathered a lot of that material, and that was entered into evidence in the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda in, in Arusha. Um, and uh, then because of my role um, in writing for, for Human Rights Watch, I got uh, pulled into a couple of cases of people that we actually named in our documents. Um, there was a, a, a man who had gotten asylum and citizenship in Finland mm. who was someone we'd actually named as a, a person who um, was involved in organizing the killing in one of the communities where we researched. So um, I got involved in that trial, and then I've been involved in about a dozen trials um, since in Finland and Sweden and the United Kingdom and Canada and the United States. Nothing in Ireland yet. <laughs> and uh, Timothy, from doing our research, we, I know you're prominently, you visited Rwanda for a good, a good period after the, the civil war, but you don't travel to Rwanda anymore. And is that due to threats on your own life? And I read about a lot of people that you trained and studied there, your Rwandan friends uh, that went missing and were tortured, killed, and in some cases even raped. And, you know, I, I suppose in that sense, did you, with the time after civil war and you do carrying out your research there in Rwanda? Was there many cases where you felt for your own life? Um, no, I've, I've really never felt threatened myself directly. Um, uh, but uh, one, of the, one of the problems with, with looking at a place like Rwanda is that it's, it's not easy just to see one side is completely bad and the other side is completely good. Um, most of the Hutu, the majority population, did not participate in the genocide, didn't even support it. 
Um, and the group that came in and put a stop to the genocide, the Rwanda Patriotic Front, which is a mm. largely Tutsi army, um, they did stop the genocide. Um, they've done some good things in governing, but they've also been, been pretty brutal to their own population. So now my background is as a human rights researcher and, and human rights scholar. Um, so the, the principles that I stand up for um, lead me to condemn genocide, but they also lead me to condemn other, other forms of violence. Um, and so because of that, I've been critical of the current government and, and have sometimes gotten in trouble with them. Um, the uh, the uh, woman who um, was the foreign minister and now is the head of uh, the Association for, for Francophone Countries is somebody who had called me out for, for criticizing her, her government too much. So I, I don't travel to Rwanda, uh, not because of direct threats necessarily, but I, I just I, I don't feel... Yeah, and I suppose, Timothy, lot, an awful lot of work as you've done. You've written many books and um, memoirs and reports, and some of it indicate the involvement of the Rwandan Christian Church in the 1994 genocide. And uh, can you tell us what your research made you to lead that, that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah, I have a book, uh, Christianity and Genocide in Rwanda, that um, was based on my research from both before and after the genocide. Um, I basically looked at the divisions that existed within the church. Rwanda was an overwhelmingly Catholic country, uh, over two-thirds Catholic, um, but also about a, a third Protestant. Um, and both Catholic and Protestants uh, became very directly involved in the genocide. Um, there, there were a lot of people who, because of their faith, were called to be heroic and to oppose the genocide. And some of them lost their lives. Um, but unfortunately, those who were most powerful, the, the bishops and church presidents and others, um, were very closely allied with the state. There was a history of religion uh, playing a role in ethnic discrimination mm. and also of cooperating very closely with the government. And so when the genocide happened, there were a lot of Christians who, who really believed that participating in the genocide was consistent with their Christian faith. Um, it, it's hard for us to understand that, uh, but it really comes out of the history of colonialism and its relationship with with Christianity in a place like Rwanda. Um, the uh, the other thing I think that, that really happened within the churches is um, one of the things that led to the genocide was that there were major transformations taking place in Rwanda. People were mm. demanding democracy. They were demanding a greater voice and uh, and trying to bring their government under control. And so the government responded with, with ethnic violence by trying to crush this opposition. Well, something similar was happening in the churches. Um, people in the churches were rising up and demanding a greater voice, demanding more democracy, demanding that the churches be less corrupt. Uh, and so the genocide fit the interests of some church leaders as well to, to, to crush that kind of opposition. Yeah, and I suppose, t Timothy, as well, um, an estimated 2 million Rwandans, mostly Hutus, were displaced and became refugees. And when you came back to Rwanda after the, the civil war, and but before, uh, previously you were there before it happened, uh, seeing all this mass chaos and destruction and uh, uh, basically uh, a country on its knees in relation to infections, diseases, cholera, basically a population near famine status, um, how has that sort of affected you coming back to that sort of environment and seeing firsthand a country that had fallen right down to the crumbles, uh, basically to the ashes, and to seeing resemblance to places where you had been basically two or three years ago and seeing them now a shelf of their former existence? Well, the, the hardest part was the, the human cost of what happened. Um, in the year that, when I went back to Rwanda for Human Rights Watch, in the year that I was there, um, I gradually reconnected with friends who'd survived the genocide. Um, and hearing the stories from them, 
um, about, about what happened to people that we knew and what happened to them. Um, you know, I, I not only knew people very closely who were killed, but, it, but in many cases I knew the people who killed them. Um, you know, I have a, a friend who talked to me about having been raped um, by someone that we both knew very well. Um, and, and for me, that's the hard part because it's, it's having been in Rwanda, I can't think of them as people who are completely different from us. I can't look at them and shake my head and say, oh, those Rwandans, mm. because I, I knew them on a personal level. They were just like us. They're just like anyone else. They just happened to be in a really bad circumstance. Um, so so the, the fact that I can identify the humanity of both those who were killed and those who were involved in the killing and, and rape and, and other forms of violence, that's, that's the hardest part for me, really. I, I think... You know, I, I can't distance myself from it and just sort of shake my head and, and say, you know, those are bad people. Um, mm. I think that's a tendency for us looking at Africa in general in, in the West is to, to look at Africa and say, oh, those Africans, what are they doing? They, they're, they're so violent. And not to realize, you know, that, that there's a history of colonialism, there's a history of ongoing economic exploitation and political exploitation that's really at the root of a lot of this violence. We're, we're much closer to it than we think we are. Yeah, and I suppose, Timothy, at the time as well, there was an awful tragedy going on in uh, Europe, another sort of genocide in itself in the Baltics, the Baltic region. How do you think that sort of played in in relation to Rwanda, that maybe because what was happening on Europe's own front doors, that maybe the focus and the attention worldwide was more the Baltics uh, situation, maybe took maybe the, the light the, away from Rwanda as such and what was going on? on there at the time? Well, there's also a different framing of, of them. So in the, in the newspapers, uh, you'd see on the front page an article about uh, about ethnic violence in Yugoslavia and tribal violence in Africa. And the implication is you know, that Africans are just prone to violence, whereas there's a surprise that this kind of violence could happen in Europe, even, even though, frankly, you know, there have been lots of violent episodes in European history that aren't that, aren't that long ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that the you know that the West would be more concerned about something happening right right at its doorstep. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the violence in Rwanda was not disconnected from us. It was carried about carried out by weapons that largely came from the West. Um, there was an involvement of Western governments in supporting the regime that was carrying out the genocide. France, in particular, was very directly involved in propping up the regime. Um, and you know, countries like the United States worked very hard to keep the United Nations from stepping in to to try to stop the violence. Um, the reality in Rwanda is it was not chaotic at all. It was actually very well planned. It was a centralized decision that was made, and, and the command was given from the top and carried down at the bottom. And, and we could have stopped it if we had wanted to. If we'd understood the situation and gone in and arrested or detained or, or somehow you know, gotten in the way of that small group of people who planned it, the genocide could have been stopped. Um, but we, we weren't interested in doing that. Yeah, and Timothy, you mentioned there as well about the, the channels that was used in relation to the genocide. And one of the big those channels was the media and uh, the use of radio and uh, the, the use of that, the implications of being the control and the military controlling all the air airwaves in relation to the radio and in relation to the outputs that were being put out in the media circles. And it probably brought into a light in relation to the role that the uh, media communications play in a civil war. And that was probably one area that if the, the Western had tackled that sort of a problem, it could have maybe led to, not I, not I would say led to maybe, it could have been stopped much earlier. Yeah, we could have blocked the radio station, or we could have shut shut them down, the hate radio and hate media. You know, but 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 even beyond that, 
if, if the leaders of the West had called out what was happening and called it genocide and condemned it and threatened that there would be consequences for those carrying it out, they would have stopped. It's very clear one of the things I found in my research was going into even very rural areas and looking at the notes from the security meetings that, that the county's uh, government were holding. Um, but they talked about their international impression. They were worried about Western satellites finding dead bodies and, and the consequences that it would have for Rwanda. And so, so even at the most rural, local area, they were talking about what the rest of the world thought about them. That, that suggests that they were very susceptible to international condemnation. So you know, even, even short of intervening with troops or, or even doing something as simple as stopping the radio station, if we had simply called out genocide hmm. and demanded that it stopped, you know, it, it, it could have had a big impact. Yeah, and Timothy, you have another book out that I just want to mention, uh, Memory and Justice in Post-Genocide uh, Rwanda. And you talk about something, I've, I watched a video there today about the Galicia trials, where the Rwandans actually tried to actually self-govern themselves in relation to calling out people in their local communities who they felt were involved in such heinous atrocities. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So... Um the problem that they ran into in Rwanda was that there were so many people who were facing genocide accusations, um, and not all of them were even, even guilty, but they were spending a long time in prison because the judicial system just wasn't up to the task of, of, of uh, processing all their cases. And so they came up with an idea of, well, let's just turn to the local communities and have them decide who is guilty and who is not. So they reached back into Rwandan tradition and looked at something called Pachacha, which was a sort of traditional dispute resolution mechanism, and they, and they adapted that um, towards uh, modern judicial um, processes. And then they had every community in the country um, sit in judgment of its members. Um, it was something I thought, it was a very interesting idea. I had a lot of optimism for it when it was first created. Um, and in some cases, it really did find a number of people who were guilty. It also released some people who'd been in prison for a long time, even though they weren't guilty. Um, but it also got accused politically. Um, Rwanda is an authoritarian state right now, um, and so there aren't the kinds of civil rights protections we got hoped for and fair trial protections. And so um, sometimes people who were guilty of genocide but were from wealthy, powerful families were able to get off. Uh, and sometimes people who um, fell afoul of, of those who were powerful were imprisoned even though they weren't guilty. Um, so I do think this kind of grassroots justice was a, it was a creative, creative attempt to, to deal with a, a terrible problem. Um, in the end, I'm pretty critical of it, though. I think it actually got politicized and abused. Um, but, you know, I would say in other, in other cases, maybe countries should think about something like this. Now, one of the things that was good about Kachacha was it really allowed each community to talk about what happened. And so at the end of the genocide, there's, there is... Uh, uh, at the end of the process, Kachacha process, there's a much better idea of what happened in the genocide. I think one other problem with it is that it, it was not uh, able to talk about or deal with uh, any crimes that were perpetrated by those who are now in power, by the Rwanda Patriotic Front. And in fact, there were tens of thousands of people who were killed by them in Rwanda and, and then later in Congo when they got involved in civil wars there. And so we had a good accounting of the genocide and what happened there but no accounting whatsoever for other crimes that were committed by those who continue to be very powerful. And so for a lot of people in Rwanda, they don't really feel that justice has been done because it was one-sided. 
Yeah, and Timothy, how do you feel about your connections with uh, Rwanda? Is it memories that you, in relation to good times, in relation to before the genocide, that you cherish, or do you feel there are the connections after the friends that you've lost and your the, the involvement is? I know it's in relation to career wise, been studying that, or is it sometimes you look at it, you can take you take the good and the bad the, the experiences that 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 big parts of your life played out. Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, it's it's a bit like family, you know, and that you take the good and the bad. Um, and I've spent so many years working on Rwanda, and have spent so much time and have so many friends. It, it's never been an easy place, even before the genocide. Rwanda has always been a very hierarchical place, and people are very careful about what they say and who they connect. But also, when you become friends with Rwandans, um, they're they're really serious about their friendship. <laughs> it's very deep. Um, and so I, I feel a really strong connection to the place. Also, though, uh, you know, something as terrible as a genocide happening is something you just can't you can't leave behind. I, I I feel like whatever my feelings are for Rwanda, I have a moral responsibility to keep speaking up. Mm. And this is a country where I have a lot of friends who were killed, and when I look at that, I, I really feel like um, I, I, I am required to say something and to keep speaking up, not just in Rwanda but in other places. Lots of times I, I look at in other parts of the world and and feel like, you know, I saw this happen in Rwanda. I look at my own country in the United States. I think we've had a real rightward trend and there's been a, an empowerment of white nationalists and, uh, you know, anti-Muslim sentiments and misogyny that are spreading. And, and I feel like based on my experience in Rwanda, I have to call that out in my own country because I can say, look, you know, if we allow the little things to happen, we can go down this road and you'll be surprised how quickly you can stumble into something terrible. Um, so, you know, Rwanda's I carry it with me always, um, and even if I wanted to, I don't think I could leave it behind. Yeah, and finally, Timothy, uh, the last question for you now. Um, you spotted this probably lead on. You probably mentioned, uh, touched on this in your answer to the last question. Do you think what happened in uh, or in Rwanda to that mass scale has the potential ever have to happen again in Central Africa? Uh, well, I don't think it'll happen in Rwanda anytime soon. Yeah. For one thing. Um, people in Rwanda know how terrible it was and suffered from it, and and so you know, they'll avoid it. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, there are plenty of places where this could happen. Uh, when you have countries that are very poor and people are very frustrated, and their governments are authoritarian, and the international community is is supporting those authoritarian governments, um, when people feel like there's no other way to react, um, and then someone comes along and says, "Well, let's use violence." Um, that that can be a, a very attractive call for people, um, and so I do worry about it quite a bit. Um, I worry about it in, in in Africa. I worry about it in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, there's been a, I think, a move away from human rights um, in Europe, in in North America, in Africa. Um, dictators are empowered, uh, and when dictators are empowered, they often abuse their power. Um, th this kind of violence, it's never spontaneous. It, it's never just people rising up out of frustration. It's, it's because there are leaders who exploit their frustration. You get powerful individuals who push people into doing things they would not otherwise do. And that's very hard to counteract. So I, I worry about that a lot, all, all over, not just in Africa. Uh, Timothy Longman, it's been a pleasure talking to you on the airwaves this evening. We, we encourage all our listeners to really do purchase that uh, and get in contact with, in relation to Timothy's books in relation to Rwanda. They're absolutely mesmerizing reads and real quality, in-depth 
study, study and research into what went on in Rwanda, post-Rwanda and in relation to genocide as, uh, itself. And uh, Timothy, it's been a pleasure talking to you on the airways this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with me. Have a good, have a good evening. Cheers. Thank you.